Amen, amen. You can go and have a seat. And if you are our elementary age friends, you are now dismissed to your class. And it was such a joy to worship together with you guys. We are truly a family of families on one mission together as God's church. Thank you so much, brother. And we're going to continue our mission today, our series today in the book of Titus. And so if you want to get a head start, you can turn to Titus. And if you don't have a copy of God's work, they're available for you in the back. And again, if you don't have a copy of the sermon notes for you, they are also in the back. We're handing them out each Sunday morning now going forward, and so be sure to get one as you come in. But if you haven't gotten one yet and would like one, they are in the back um, as well on the usher table. And so we're super thankful for all that God is doing here, and on the dreary days that are outside, we can be filled with the warmth of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Amen. And so God is at work in a significant way. And thank you for your hearts to worship through singing, through, through giving. And you can give in the back. You can give online. And you can also, as we now dig, dig into the word. Uh, this whole series called Build Your Church, it's a cry of our hearts. It's, it's our prayer. Jesus, build your church. And through this series, we're seeing nine different pursuits that we are to be having. As Jesus is the chief architect, the designer, the foundation, as he has laid out his plan to build his church, what are we as to be pursuing? as we seek to be glorifying God and multiplying his church. And as part of this journey is, again, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1 today. Um, we want to share, I want to share some different highlights of Build Your Church highlights, testimonies along the way. One of them is I want to encourage you with this reality. We are a church planting church on mission for God, amen? And so this summer we had the opportunity to go to one of our gospel partners in the Dominican Republic and, and really be with them as God is burgeoning this church planting movement where they are going to plant a new church. And you'll see behind me a picture of our team along with some of the pastors here, Pastor Goomer and some of the locals in this, this barrio, this neighborhood called Hato Mayor in the city of Santiago. Well, this week they put a deposit down on a location for their new church plant in Hato Mayor. That's awesome. Praise God. Amen. That's awesome. They at this same location about a month ago, they had 70 kids for, v, for VBS. So God is at work. And now you have a huge part of that as you pray, as you give generously, generous hearts lead to multiply gospel opportunities. Your finances go to support things like this. And so thank you so much for all of that. And I want to call us to be in prayer for this church, right? Because everywhere, I don't know about if you've experienced this, I know I have, and I know we have collectively. Everywhere where God's kingdom is advancing, man, Satan is trying to disrupt, amen? It's sort of like when, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you take a step forward spiritually, you're going to get baptized, you're going to join a small group, you're going to take on spiritual leadership, you commit your life to the Lord, and all of a sudden life seems to go crazy, right? And spiritual opposition, spiritual warfare is real. And it comes in all different shapes, sizes, and formats, but we can't ignore its reality. But even in the middle of its reality, we have to remember to claim the victory that we have in Jesus, right? While we have a battle every day, we know who won the war. His name is Jesus. Praise God. Amen. And it's so much so that we see this, and, and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. And he says this, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. What's interesting in this text, if you're familiar with it, the preceding verses, Peter is exhorting elders in a local church of how to lead and how to care and how to be God's under shepherd. He's saying here, with all humility, lead this way, but be on watch because our adversary, the devil, is out to get him. But here's hope, right? Those two words, resist him, right? It's possible to resist him. Isn't that awesome? And so we need to be encouraged by that. And how do we resist him? by being firm in the faith. So I don't know if you walked in here this morning and you're experiencing some spiritual opposition or maybe individually or maybe sensing it collectively in in the church or even in the community or the world, but there's hope today. 
Again, everywhere that God is advancing his kingdom, Satan is trying to destroy it, but he's helpless, honestly, at the end of the day, because our God wins, amen? But we're going to see in the text today that right on the tails again of Paul going, Titus, this is how to build your church, to establish it, to pursue spiritual maturity. Look for these godly biblical leaders. And now on the heels of that, literally, we're going to see spiritual opposition because it exists. And so we have to be very, very intentional about that. Titus is giving himself to building God's church. And as he seeks to institute biblical order and put it into order, as Paul commends him to in verse 5, and appoint qualified leaders, there are going to be many significant obstacles and serious opponents. And maybe you're experiencing that today. I know we've experienced that at different shapes, sizes, and forms in the life of our church. Similarly, in today's world, there's much hostility to the notion of gospel purity, isn't there? The reality that Jesus is enough alone, that he's sufficient, and that he's supreme, and that he's sovereign. And sometimes it comes from outside the church, and I hate to tell you to this, but maybe you've, re- re- maybe you've had to walk through this, but oftentimes it comes from inside the church. That's what's happening in Titus, in Crete. But we are not helpless, and we are not hopeless. Because we're going to see today that as we pursue the gospel purity in every area of our life, we will experience the enduring hope of eternal life every day of our life. As we pursue building the church of God, we will experience much opposition that wants to distort the gospel. But instead of running it, running from it, Paul is going to exhort Titus, and he's going to exhort us today. We need to biblically confront it. With a heart of love, and with the confidence of the power of the gospel, and with the reality that as we stand firm in the gospel, as we, res- we can resist opposition to the gospel and experience life abundantly that only comes through the gospel. We have to do this individually. We also do, have to do it collectively. Today's big idea is this. You'll see it on the screen and in the notes. That pursuing gospel purity requires addressing gospel fallacy directly. We want to pursue gospel purity, a pure gospel that says Jesus is enough. And as a part of that, we have to confront gospel fallacy, which are distorted beliefs, untrue beliefs that are, that are put forth based off of unsound doctrine. So as we see how to do that today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm so thankful for the purity of the hope of the gospel that we have, that no matter where we are today, the reality is that we are loved by you. We can be redeemed by you. We can be restored by you. God, this text is going to show us your heart vibrantly, that you seek, that you desire, for every single person, God, to be restored into right relationship with you that comes only through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I I pray that we would see that gospel purity, that we would cling to it, that we would believe it, and that we would live it. Father, there is much opposition to it, and help us to stand firm against it. God, through the power that comes through the Holy Spirit, and through the purity and the priority that we have as we put our hearts, set our hearts on what matters to you and give our lives, God, to what you've commanded us to. God, silence me right now and may your spirit flow. Open our hearts to receive whatever you would have for us. <clears throat> it's in your name we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 10 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, and he says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Again, at Harvest, if you're newer here, we love to go verse by verse through the entire book of the Bible, through God's word, and taking the passages that come in context as they, as they appear, and then apply them to our lives. And as you know, if you're familiar, well, while we look at one chunk each week, we have to understand the context that it flows as one letter. So what we're reading today is, is what's it, what we read last week and the week before is very important to understanding the context of today and, and what will launch us forward into the weeks to come. We want to learn how to study God's word and apply it. So a foundational building block, if you remember, if you want to look back at verse 5, that says, Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete. Again, he's writing to Titus. Titus is a young pastor. He's probably in his late 20s, early 30s. Crete's an island, very, very full of people that do not follow God. And he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there are established, there are churches that have been planted, but Paul's like, your calling is to establish them. Our God is a God of order, putting back into order again. And we're going to see this theme all throughout the text today, all throughout chapter one. There is this doctor uh, sort of metaphor that Paul is using throughout, this health metaphor. So put back into place is like a doctor resetting a broken bone. And how do we do that? We put biblical leadership into the right place. We, we find biblical leaders who will help carry this out and execute it. And as we walk through the qualification of elders last week, we see in verse 9 that Paul uh, f- closes that section with this. He says, he, he being an elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to what? Rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke those who contradict it. So now the section that we're going to have, and so the word for connects back up into that previous section. So it's like, how does an elder confront, how does it address, how does an elder rebuke those who contradict what? The sound, healthy doctrine of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, while this is primarily geared for elders, this has an application for all of us. We are all called to this, not just some of us, but but all of us. So how do we do this? How do we address gospel fallacy, these things that take the gospel, the truth, the purity of it, and try to distort it to one thing or another? Derek, I'm so glad you asked that. Thank you for that. I was wondering that myself. We're going to see in this text three different steps to addressing gospel fallacy in our pursuit of gospel purity. Three different steps to address gospel fallacy, because this text is very, very clear that we can't run from it, whether you like confrontation or not, but we are called to it. But there's a biblical way in how to do it. We don't just willy-nilly. We don't just get out our sledgehammer and beat people. We don't get the bull pulling out. We don't, no. We want to do it from a biblical perspective. So how do we do it? The first step is this, is to diagnose it. To diagnose it. Again, think with me from the doctor, from the, the medical metaphor. 
If you have uh, symptoms that you're displaying, you go to your doctor and, and, and he asks you what the symptoms are, right? Before he diagnoses you, before he comes up with a treatment plan of how to interact with you. Do you need surgery? Do you just need, a, a, do you need medicine? Do you just need rest? He goes, what are the symptoms? Or he, she says, what are the symptoms? And you walk through that. And so we, in the same way, spiritually, we have to learn the symptoms of the gospel fallacy or a false teacher to learn how to diagnose it so that we then know how to address it. Because depending on what the situation is, requires different solutions, requires different ways to interact with it. So we see that right here. And we see what's happening. And so we flow out into verse 10. Paul goes here, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. So he begins to go into some of the diagnostic aspect of this, which we will circle back to in a second. And then he says, here's the importance of it, the why. They must be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families. They're teaching for shameful gain what they not ought to teach. You see the impact here, the significant impact of gospel fallacy. It upsets whole families. It destroys, it damages the unity of the church. And so it must be addressed. It can't, you can't just sit idly on your hands. Because remember, an elder is called a shepherd, right? And what do shepherds do? They lead, they feed, they protect and they guide. So part of protecting the flock, part of the goal here, one of the goals here, and there's another goal, big goal that we'll see in a second. One of the big goals here is to protect the flock, protect the purity of the gospel, protect the name of Jesus Christ. So we have to do that. They're upsetting whole families because the teaching is coming from the circumcision party. That's verse 10. Who is the circumcision party? They're Judaizers. They grew up in knowing a lot intellectually about theology. But they're distorting the gospel. They claimed to know Jesus. Verse 16 says that. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, by their actions. Know anybody like that? Are you like that? Because throughout this whole theme, while we begin to go, where are the false teachers out there? We need to look first and foremost in our own hearts and go, am I believing gospel fallacy in here? There were not just a few of them we see in this text, but there were many of them. For there are many, verse 10 says. They were divisive, they were destructive, they were deceivers, they were defiling the purity of the gospel and they were headed themselves to personal destruction, this text points to. Gospel purity promotes unity. Gospel fallacy destroys unity in the church. Gospel, and I want you to hear this, gospel purity resides and rests in this reality, the reality of Jesus' sufficiency and the reality of Jesus' supremacy and his sovereignty. That's gospel purity at its core. The, The sufficiency of Jesus means that the finished work of Jesus on the cross is enough. It's enough. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So the sufficiency of Jesus is enough. We are all sinners. That's the reality of the gospel in need of a savior. Romans talks about that ad nauseum. That one sin is enough to cast us from eternity with God into eternity apart from God in hell, separated from God because we can't pay for it. God can't be a living in the presence of sin. We can't pay for the, the price of our sin on our own. We needed a perfect substitute to pay, entering Jesus, the son of God who lived a perfect life as a fully man and fully God and died the death that you and I deserved on the cross that took on our sin and gave us his righteousness so that through his death, God now looks at us through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and sees us as pure and holy. 
only through Jesus. So the sufficiency of Jesus is, since the gospel, his death was enough. And also the sufficiency of Jesus says he's enough for me in today's day and age. Whether I have a job or don't have a job, Jesus is enough. Whether I have a a marriage or I don't have a marriage, whether I have kids or don't have kids, whether I have the house I want or don't have the house I want, Jesus is enough, amen? And then the supremacy of Jesus says that his word is the absolute authority in my life. Because part of salvation is the reality that I put myself under in a spirit of humility, the authority of God as my Lord. There's no salvation without the Lordship of God. You can acknowledge the intellectual reality that Jesus is a savior, but not be saved yourself personally. Because you have to submit your heart and life under the authority of Jesus as Lord. That's Romans 10, right? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Have you genuinely confessed him as Lord, which means that your life is modeling the reality that God's word is my absolute authority and I'm going to live for him, that he is supreme, he is sovereign, that this is my truth, his word. So if you think about it, gospel gospel purity rests in the reality of Jesus' sufficiency and supremacy. It rests in the reality of Jesus' work and his words. Is that you today? Are you resting your life on the finished work of Jesus And are you submitting your life under the authority of Jesus? Paul did that in the first verse. Right here, Paul, a servant, chapter one, verse one, he is saying, Paul, a doulos, which means I am a bond slave. I have submitted my heart and my life under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the purity of the gospel. The heart of the gospel purity means it magnifies Christ. We sang that this morning. Gospel fallacy minimizes or marginalizes Jesus Christ. You'll see this equation on the screen it's the most important equation you will ever see, whether you are good at math or not, at ma- not good at math. I hope you get this one. Gospel purity is the equation that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He's enough, amen? He's enough for your eternal salvation. He's enough for your eternal security. He's enough for your daily provision. He is enough. But what is happening here in Crete is if you imagine this, as the purity of the gospel, the sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus. It's pure, right? It's clear. You can see it. You can drink it. You can apply it. Well, Judaizers were going into homes, and some of these churches met in homes, so they might have been in a small group, right, spewing this what nonsense. But what they were saying is this, that, yeah, Jesus is great and all, but you still need to be circumcised to be a part of the family of God. Jesus is great and all, but you still need to follow the dietary regulations and restrictions in the Old Testament, or else you're not really a part of the family of God. And so Jesus is great and all, that's the purity of the gospel, but, okay, you need to be circumcised, but you need to eat this way. What's happening to the purity of the gospel right here? It's getting distorted. It's getting damaged. And so in the homes, they were then sitting around the table going, hey, Johnny, do you need to get circumcised? I think I do. No, I don't. And then all of a sudden, this this unity was happening because the purity of the gospel had been distorted. Same thing is happening today in many ways with different additives to the gospel or different things that were subtracting away from the impact of the gospel. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Do you believe that today? 
These gospel fallacies and false teachers don't just exist then, but they also exist now. So what do we do with them? First, we have to diagnose them. Here in this text, Paul gives us three different diagnostic tools that are super helpful to recognizing gospel fallacies. And a couple of caveats before we dive into here, I think are really, really important. Really important. The first is this. Don't assume the worst about others. Okay, as we learn how to describe and detect gospel fallacies, that doesn't mean every single person that walks in the door of your home, you're like, are you a false teacher, right? Because by definition, 1 Corinthians 13 says love assumes the best. It believes the best until proven otherwise. Now on the counter of this, be on high alert, right? So don't just assume the worst. The other part of this is realize it's about the heart. Don't assume intent, seek understanding with others. And we'll walk through that later in the message about how to do that and what that really means. But here are some gospel fallacy diagnostic tools from the text that we can apply to our lives. The first is this, observe doctrine, observe their beliefs. Paul talks about that right here. They're, they're teaching what they ought not to teach. Verse 11, they are empty talkers. They're deceivers. And verse 14, they're devoted to Jewish myths and commands of the people. They're not devoted to the word of the Lord. They don't want to follow God. They're following the commands of people who, and they're turning away from the truth. Their doctrine is off. It's unsound. It's unhealthy. So as you begin to hear things that don't align up with God's word, it should set off some alarms in your head. Now you're like, how do I understand doctrine? How do I know what false teaching is? There are so many different variants and you're right. If you've been here a while, you've heard this illustration before, but I think it's a very, very helpful one. I'm not sure of a better one when it comes to diagnosing false teachers. How do I know what is true? Well, do you know that the Secret Service in studying counterfeit bills, how do they know, because there are several hundred thousand different variations of counterfeit bills, how do they diagnose counterfeit bills? They learn the real thing. They study the real thing. What makes this true? What makes it pure? So that they know a fake when they see it. They don't know all the different fakes out there, but they know it's not the real thing. In the same way, we are to study God's words so that we know what is true, right? We can detect true doctrine from false doctrine. We can study it, examine it, live it, which is why we're continuing to try to grow in that even here at Harvest, whether through the, the women's study that's happening in a couple weeks or the, the open to all study, the Got Question study that kicked off today at 8.15 on Sundays or small groups or a variety of things. We want to know it. We want to, we want to discern it. We want to vet scripture with scripture. Second diagnostic tool is observe desires. First of all, observe deeds, sorry. What are they doing? Here, they're, they're causing disunity. That's not the gospel. The, unity, the gospel unifies what was once broken, not divides it. They're pursue their empty talkers, their deceivers. And even in verse 16, it's very prominent. It says they deny Jesus by their works. They're doing things that are not in God's word. Is that you? It's super helpful. They're liars. They call themselves liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Is that walking with the Lord? No. We are called to display fruit of the Spirit. The overflow of the work of God of seeking gospel purity in our heart is the display of the fruit of the Spirit with our lives, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's in Galatians. None of us are perfect. These are why these are pursuits and not perfection. But we should be displaying more and more of that in our lives. Is that true about you and me? Does your walk match your talk? Does your life match your lips? 
Are your behaviors anchored in the gospel? Are you approaching life with a gospel, God-centered perspective? Asking what would God's word have me do in this situation or not? And third and finally, we are to observe desires. Verse 11, it says, By their teaching for shameful gain, their teaching went out to be, their desire was themselves. Their desire was to make money. Their desire was to retain control. Their desire was to have the power and the position and the prestige. Is that you? Is that me? What's your motivation? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and the life acts. What is your desire? Sadly, the same is very true today. Money drives a lot of things. The desire for control, the desire for power, the desire for influence. Is that you or me? Sadly, there are many of these things happening today. Some example of gospel fallacies or false teachers today are this. Some that are making additives to God's word. The prosperity gospel, right? Saying, if you follow the Lord and if you give money to a ministry, then all of a sudden you'll be blessed and you'll have private jets and all these things. No, you might not. God might choose to do that. Great. But Jesus says, count the costs. You will sacrifice. We give out of a heart of worship, not out of a heart to gain more ourselves. Jesus said, your life will be hard. The legalistic gospel, the gospel that says, yeah, great, you're a believer, but... You can't do this, you can't do that, can't do this, or else you're not a believer. Like, that's the Judaizers to a T. We have to understand that different people have different self-constraints that the Holy Spirit puts on them. But Jesus said that I, have not, that I have come to fulfill the law. That he is the satisfaction of every Old Testament rule and regulation that has been built up. And we have freedom in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. The gospel is full of grace and not guilt. On the other side of that is the licensed gospel, which says, oh, I have the Lord. Now I can do, do whatever I want. Paul hits that hard in Romans, right? He says the reality, just because you are covered by grace doesn't mean that you can go sin more, right? Okay, I can do whatever I want because then I'll just ask for God's forgiveness. And no, because here's the reality that a true heart submitted to the Lord wants to please and serve the Lord. The universalist gospel that says all roads lead to heaven. Friends, I love you, but they don't. There is one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. John 14, 6. No one gets to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The good works gospel. I just do enough. I give enough. I work for Habitat for Humanity on the weekends. I volunteer in the homeless shelters over here. I am good enough to get into heaven. You cannot earn your way into heaven, friends. Can't earn it. None of us can. Or the good enough gospel. I know that I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. So I think I've done enough. I'm not bad enough that Jesus won't turn me away. Friends, if you are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you have not given your heart and life to him, you will not enter the gates of heaven. I love you enough that I have to say that. Because God's word says that. The political or the cultural gospel. Did you know that in the heart of the gospel, Rome was oppressing the Christians and believers so much that they were martyred and all these things. You know what Jesus never did? He never worked to overthrow the human government. Purity of gospel remembers that we are, gospel, we are eternal citizens, citizens of heaven, living on earth as earthly ambassadors. It means the reality that Jesus will unite all of us, that different people in this room or in this world vote for different people, different candidates. Okay, great. There is one Savior. 
And at the end of the day, the gospel says that we are to exalt Jesus over all. Work for the issues, work in activists, work, do these things that are, God has put on your heart that align with God's word. But remember that sometimes the ends don't justify the means. That In every aspect and step that we take, we are to be acting as representatives of Jesus Christ. How we post on social media, what we do, is it in alignment with the Lord? How we speak to others who view life differently. We must enter and anchor in the Lord. That's the heart of the purity of the gospel. At the heart of every false gospel is the reality that says, I'm on my own throne of my heart. The purity of the gospel says, Jesus Christ is on the throne of my heart. And before we look out there for false gospel, we need to look in here. Where in my own heart and life am I believing a gospel fallacy or living it out or purporting it? Where do I need to repent of that? Because remember, pursuing gospel purity requires addressing gospel fallacy directly, yes, with others, but it starts in my own heart. It starts in my own heart. Second step in addressing gospel fallacy is this. We need to confront it. After we diagnose it, we need to confront it. Imagine getting a diagnosis from your doctor, something bad in you or harmful in you, right? And he's not just like, we're going to do nothing about it, just keep on going on. Now, what does he say? We got to do something about it. Here's a treatment plan. Here's option A. Here's option B. Here's option C. Here's the urgency of it. Here's, you know, all the things. In the same way, Paul's like, Titus, you need to deal with this. He speaks very directly. He says in verse 11, they must be silenced, these false teachers. He says in verse uh, 13 that you need to rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in, in doctrine. You need to hit it head on or else it's like weeds in your grass. That you have. Anybody ever have weeds that just take care of themselves? <laughs> I wish. I don't. But it gets get worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. I love the heart of, of what Pastor Andrew has been so helpful. And he has a great saying around the office to me. He goes, you know, I, he, he, I believe that lots of awkward, humble, direct initial conversations cut off the, the really big destructive conversations or things that will happen down the road. We need to be willing in a heart of humility, not a heart. <clears throat> we need to be willing in a heart of humility to address these things directly. Why to protect the flock? This is the role of an elder, but it's also the role of all of us. We can't be a spiritual pacifist when it comes to this. We are not Switzerland because our adversary Satan is bringing the battle to your door and to your family and to this church, whether you like it or we like it or not, right? Ephesians 6 is real. And we need to remember who we fight and who we don't. The real enemy is Satan. Not the person, but Satan. And we need to stand. We can stand as we put on all the full armor of God, every aspect of it, and we fight. But we can't, we cannot run from the battle. And we can't believe that we're going to win the battle without engaging with the gospel purity that comes from putting on our armor. The goal, the, Paul's goal here is very, very clear. Twofold. One, in this text, protect the church protect the people. But the second aspect of his goal, the second goal is, is really powerful to me. And it's been challenging to me this week. And you see it directly in verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be what? Sound in the faith. He, he has a heart for the false teacher. One of his motives is to see the false teacher come back into relationship with the Lord so that they would have healthy doctrine. Just like a doctor says, we need to get this out of you so that you can have full physical health again, right? In the same way, spiritually, Paul's like, I, you need to address this to do surgery so that the false teacher can come back into a restored relationship with the Lord because God loves them too, right? 
He does. He wants to see them come back. That's his heart right here. The heart here as we confront gospel fallacy is to use a scalpel and not a sledgehammer. And the word rebuke that we see in verse 13 has a, is a means to challenge, to correct, to expose with the heart of teaching. Not expelling, not like get out of here, you're not loved, you're not welcome here. But first go around is this, is I want you to see the truth. I want you to know the truth. I want you to come understand the truth. Remember, Paul was a false teacher at one point, right? He was a Pharisee. He gets it. The word sharply means abruptly. It means directly, precisely. That's what a scalpel is, right? It's sharp but it's also precise. It's not like I'm going to beat you down. It's like this area that we need to do the operation on. Here we go. And the doctor communicates with urgency, not like, Hey, if you ever want to get around to it right now, he's like, come on, we need to have surgery and we need to have it now. That's the same metaphor that is really happening here. That's the heart here. And keep it about Jesus. It's humility. It's not about you and me. It's not about winning an argument. Don't be me in college. Me in college wanted to win the argument. I'm like, let's have a, let's have a conversation about doctrine. But before I knew it, you know what the, really the conversation was about? Me winning the argument. It wasn't about Jesus. I might use vernacular about Jesus, but it was really about me. I was making it about me. I wanted to be shown smarter. I wanted attention. I wanted to put you honestly in your place. I was way wrong. Don't be me. The heart of humility goes, I want to exalt Jesus. And because I love you, I need to speak this truth to you, but with grace and with mercy. So here's the heart posture of, of biblical confrontation is to one, communicate with love. First Corinthians 16, Paul exhorts us in everything you do, do it in love. So prayer needs to be before, during, and after every one of these conversations. God, give me your eyes to see. Give me your words to say. Give me your heart to see this person who I might be frustrated with, who might be doing. Remember, these people were doing harm, but Paul is still instructing Timothy, Titus and we'll see how he instructs Timothy in a second. To communicate in such a way to win them back to me. That they would be restored to true, sound faith. Because that's Paul's heart. And is it our heart as we confront, as we communicate? The second heart posture is this, to confront with God's truth. It's not like I think this or I think that. No, we need to go into God's truth and use this to communicate. I see this in your life. Can you help me understand this? You said this at small group. I'm not sure that I see this in God's word. Can you show me where you're finding this from? This is what God's word says. Why are you, help me understand why you're acting this way because it's contrary to what is in here. It's confronting with God's truth. I love what Spurgeon says. He says this, a great pastor. He says, and preacher, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself, Amen. Communicate with the word, God's word, not yours. Three, correct with care. Correct with care. That you care for the other person. Paul writes it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy verse chapter 2. He says, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant and controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Friends, are you engaging in conversation just to have a quarrel? That's wrong. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Man, that's convicting, isn't it? 
but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Is that you? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Man, next time you're about to have a confrontation, read and meditate on this passage first, right? God, make my heart like this. Remove the anger. Remove the frustration. God, help me to be gentle, but direct. Help me to be caring, but with conviction. Because that's the heart. We need to have thick skin, a soft heart, and a resolved spirit. And here's the process that God lays out for us in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. The first step of that process is personally. It's relational. That doesn't mean just because I hear somebody that might be a friend of a friend on social media saying something that I don't believe to be true, that I need to get back into a social media back and forth. No. No. Some conversations are not meant for you to have, that you want to have. Others that you don't want to have are meant for you to have. This is done in relationship. Matthew 18 says, go to that person one-on-one if you see them. And if, if you win them back, you have a new brother. Praise God. Step two, if that doesn't work, bring a few friends with you. So that you can establish, is this really what I'm hearing? And I'm not just off base, but there's a, a record there. Step three, if that doesn't work in our context, bring it to the elders within the church. That's the process. So if something happens in a small group that you think is off, you're like, are you really saying what I think you're saying? Hey, can we grab a cup of coffee? Can you help me understand? Because please ask questions before you hurl accusations or make assumptions, right? That's a huge component of this. Because stuff might be happening beneath the surface or behind the scenes or in their life that you have no idea. So before you make a character assumption, ask a question. That's love. Can you help me understand what you meant when you said this or why you, what you meant when you did this? And ask the Lord to lead you. Because remember, pursuing gospel purity requires addressing gospel fallacy directly. So we need to diagnose it. We need to confront it. And third and finally, we need to resist it. We need to resist it. Remember from 1 Peter, we can resist it, right? We can resist it. How? Firm in the faith. We see that in this text right here. Verse 15 and 16 Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works and they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They profess to know God, but they deny him by your works. One, is that you? Is that me? Do the words that I say match the life that I live? Am I the same consistent? A gospel purity is evidenced with a life of gospel integrity and consistency across the board in every scenario and situation. Two, we have to understand the reality that we're vulnerable to this. We are vulnerable to falling to gospel fallacies, right? Just get on your social media feed, listen to your favorite talk radio shows, turn on cable news, whatever. They're going to tell you a lot of things that aren't in alignment with God's word. And God's word even says in 2 Timothy 4, he says this, and, and there will come a time where you will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into mist because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now you can like listen to whatever podcast you want, right? 
And out of that, you rationalize, you're my base of the truth is because so-and-so on a podcast said so and I cherry-picked it. Uh-uh. We need to go into God's word and resist the temptation to give in to gospel fallacy by anchoring into the truth of God's word. To the pure, all things are pure. What does that mean? It means it's a reference back to what Jesus said, right? Out of the overflow of the heart, the life speaks. That nothing going into a person defiles him, Jesus said in Mark 7. But what is already in him that comes out of him, that sin, that overflows, evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, greed, adulteries, evil actions, promiscuity, deceit, stinginess, all of that flows out of what is already inside of me. So we resist him by clinging to the purity of the gospel inside me, and then we are demonstrating that by living out a purity of the gospel to those that are around me in my everyday life. Because this, the purity of the gospel did not happen for these false teachers. There was inconsistency. They denied him by their works, and they were turned away from God. We resist the false teachers and gospel fallacies by clinging to the purity of the gospel and Jesus' sufficiency, his sovereignty, and what? His supremacy. He's enough. He's enough. Friends, is that you? Do you just proclaim Jesus with your lips, but you don't live it with your life? How do I know if I'm resisting the temptation to live a life of gospel fallacy and living with gospel purity? Well, this text shows us. One of the beauties of this text is there is a, in a beautiful juxtaposition. There is a comparison between those that are walking and pursuing the purity of the gospel and those that are living out a life of a fallacy of the gospel. So if you look at the first nine verses, we have the example of Paul writing to Titus and exhorting what elders should look like, the character attributes, the pursuits, the postures of the heart. And then we have this gospel fallacy just image of a false teacher and what they are doing. There is a direct contrast there. And I think it's important for us as we close to look at this contrast and go, where am I honestly on this chart? Because remember, the, the medical sort of illustration, metaphor that is running throughout, this is a heart checkup right now for you and for me. Am I setting my heart on a life of gospel purity or am I setting my heart on a life of gospel fallacy? First is this, ask yourself this, is my heart and life submitted to the authority of God? So a heart of gospel purity, pursuing gospel purity, we see that in verses one and seven, we see Paul, a servant, by definition, a doulos, submitted under the authority of God. And verse seven, he declares himself as a steward. I'm not an owner, I'm a manager. So Paul in this text is saying, I am a, a servant, I am a son, verse four says, my savior is Jesus Christ, and I am a steward. This is my heart posture, and this is my role in life. This is my pursuit. Is that you this morning? Is everything in your life submitted to the authority of God? Your finances, your family, your work, your hobbies? The counter to that is living insubordinate to the authority of God. Verse 10, the false teacher, they were literally insubordinate. They did not like to be under authority. True serum, right? None of us really like to be under authority, do we? There's a reason kids say no a whole lot more than yes, right? None of us like to be under authority. But praise God, hope and heart come as we voluntarily place ourselves under the authority. Second question for us this morning. Am I truly pursuing? Am I resisting gospel fallacy? Am I devoted to pursuing the commands of God? That's a life of gospel purity. Paul said this, verse three, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of which I have been entrusted by the command of God. Am I living out the mission that God has commanded me and entrusted me? Or not? Or 
counter, am I devoted myself to pursuing the commands of man? Verse 14, it literally says that the false teacher, gospel fallacy, you are giving your life to living out the commands of people. We're not here to please people, are we? We're here to worship and to magnify our Savior and to give our lives under his authority. Thirdly, a heart of a life of gospel purity is building my life actively on the absolute truth of the word of God. We see that in verse 2. We see it in verse 9. We, we anchor our lives on the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Are you anchoring your heart in the absolute truth, the uncompromising truth, our God who never lies, the inerrancy of God's word? He never lies. He can't. It's not in his character. And verse 9, it compels biblical leaders, church leaders, it compels all of us, frankly, to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Sound doctrine, that word means healthy. Are you clinging and are you building your life? Are you putting everything through your life through the perspective and the paradigm of God's word? What would God have me do here? What does God want me to do in this situation? How to respond? Or are you building your life on the lies of man? Literally, that's what gospel fallacy does. It says multiple times, a, God, a false teacher is an empty talker. He's a deceiver. He or she is a deceiver. Cretans were self-described as liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Verse 14, again, they were devoting themselves not to God's word, but to Jewish myths, to cultural myths. We're not here to magnify culture. We're here to magnify Jesus Christ. What are you devoting your life to? Who are you submitting under? Because remember, they were devoting their hearts and lives to the cultural myths, the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. Gospel fallacy happens when you turn your back on the word of God. Fourth, a life of gospel purity demonstrates godliness through the consistency and integrity of my conduct. We looked at this last week, verses seven and eight. It says, are you the same God-honoring person in the workplace, in your home life, at the gym? That in every area, the, the word there is must. It's not optional in seven and eight. You must be not arrogant, quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not greedy for gain or violent, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Those are musts. Are you pursuing that? That's a pursuit of gospel purity. And only through the power of God can we have it. Or are you denying God through your conduct? Verse 16, they profess to know God. You can sit all your life in church and profess to know God, but never truly know God. And you deny God with your conduct, how you treat your spouse, how you raise your kids, what you do with your finances. Fifth, giving your life to building God's church. Paul's like, Titus, this is what it's all about. Here's the mission of which you have been entrusted. Build my church, put it into order, establish biblical leaders, find people that will rally around you that will lay their lives down for the, for the mission of Christ, just like Jesus has laid his life down for you, that will hold firm to the word when the culture reviles you. Build your church, build the church. Are you giving your life to building God's church, your finances, your time, your talents, your energy, your heart? Or are you giving your life to damaging God's church? Gospel fallacy, these false teachers, they were giving their life to create disruption in the families in the church. Is that you? When you, you do that when you gossip, you do it when you slander, you do it when you put gospel additives in there that are like Jesus plus, no, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Finally, Pursuing gospel purity means that you possess 
ongoingly the enduring daily hope of eternal life. Paul writes that in verse 2. For the sake of the God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. You see that? Which accords with godliness with the hope of eternal life. As you live out gospel purity, as you pursue it, you experience the hope of the gospel daily. No matter what is happening around you, no matter what the doctor says, no matter how, where your finances are, no matter what your work status is, no matter whether you got the promotion or not, no matter, no matter, no matter, we have the hope that is set where? On earthly things? No, on eternal things. On eternal things. That's gospel purity. Because the counter to that is experiencing the ongoing misery of being separated from God for all of eternity. Man, look at how he describes people that follow gospel fallacy. Defiled, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It means they're disqualified, unfit. Is that you? You can have all the money in the world and be full of misery. And if you do not give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you will spend your life separated from God for all of eternity in the life that is to come. It's the reality of the, the thing. I, I love you too much to not say that. So today, are you pursuing gospel purity or are you giving in to gospel fallacy? Because the beauty of the purity of the gospel says that no matter where you are today, that Jesus' blood is enough to restore you. That's what you're restoring to sound faith. That's the heart of the gospel. Paul wanted to do that with the false teachers in this text. He was exhorting Titus to that, and I want to encourage you to that right now. If you have not chosen to submit your heart and life to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to do that right now. There is no better or more beautiful thing. Amen. And if you have at one point, you've wandered away and you've given in to, to seeking after the world or putting your hope in, in whoever's going to be in the White House or putting your anchoring in your, your future into what jobs you do or don't have or what kids you do or don't have or what your, what your relationship status is on Facebook, I want to encourage you and lovingly challenge you to return back today to your first love, Jesus Christ, who has never left you. He loves you and he cares for you and he wants that restored, healthy relationship with you that only comes through Jesus and recentering our heart on the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for your grace and your mercy, your love and your help. In these moments, God, I pray that you would work pray that you would make us more and more like you, God. Father, I just pray that you would restore us back to the purity and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you're enough. You are sufficient, Jesus. You're sufficient. Your work finished on the cross is sufficient. That our guilt that we carry is covered by the grace of God that there is no sin that we can commit or have ever committed or will ever commit that is not covered by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Praise you, Jesus. God, there's not a mess that your mercy isn't sufficient enough for, God. Forgive us for wandering off into fallacy and return us back into purity, God, through the reality of your love and your grace and your mercy. Give us the strength and the humility to go, God, I've wandered and I want to come back and give us the strength and mercy to lovingly have awkward, hard conversations that are about you and not us. And God, in these moments, I pray that you would give us your supernatural discernment to lead us into your truth. God, thank you so much for the gospel. 
And thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you for your care that people, for people that are actively opposing you, God. Your love is unconditional and your grace is unending and your death and your sacrifice is enough. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.